There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high coverage foundation. More popular than soft launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. Hey, this is Jeray. Welcome to Posse of the People. In this episode, it's me, Sam, Kaya, and Diara, as usual. And we talk about the news that you probably didn't know in the past week. News that you should know, but didn't know. Janetta Elsie also joins us to talk about what's going on with the protests. And then I sit down with the current St. Louis City Treasurer, Tashara Jones, who is running to be the next mayor of St. Louis City. Incredible conversation. She's the best. Let's go. My advice for this week is an old saying, if God answered all your prayers, would it just change you or would it change the world? And I've said it before, but some of us, when we pray, when we dream, it really is just a dream for us. It's not a dream that would impact our community or the people around us. And your dream should be big enough that it will change the world. It shouldn't be so selfish that it is just about you. Dream big, y'all. Welcome, family, to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Diara Ballinger. You can find me on the Twitter and the Instagram at Diara Ballinger. And I'm Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. I'm Kaya Henderson at Henderson Kaya on Twitter. And this is DeRay at D-R-A-Y on Twitter. We're coming to you on Super Bowl Sunday, even though none of us really watch the Super Bowl. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> we, we started a little late, too, because Kaya wanted us to see the halftime show. That's time I'll never get back from my life. So thanks, Kaya. <laughs> Don't listen, don't be mad at me, be mad at the weekend. Cause, look, look, or, I don't like uh, to talk about our people in on, in public. We out we can talk he's about Canadian. Him he's Canadian. He's <laughs> Canadian. <laughs> that is that is maybe their Black History Month is a different month. Mm. Maybe that's he just wasn't mm. it wasn't all coming together for him. Okay. Oh my soul. But we're not even gonna talk about we're gonna there's so many things, more important things to talk about. Um we could go on and on and on about all the many things that were wrong with the Super Bowl. That's another day, another dollar. Um but we're just gonna get into um what's going on with these stimulus stimulus. Stimulus. <laughs> you said it just like stimulus. Okay, cousin. Just stimulus. like black people. Just stimulus like black check. People. Where's my stimulus? Where's check? my check? So people, the stimmy. people Give are me the stimmy. <laughs> people are still, you know, the, the checks are coming in the mail for some folks. There's still, but it, it's like the checks from before, or is it the checks that are coming now? New checks. These are new checks. New checks. There's a whole lot of debate over whether these are new checks or are they adding on to the original $600 or is this a new round of 2000 Like we've heard many different variants of this and it looks like in Congress right now they're fighting over is it, you know, $1,400 on top of the 600 Who gets the $1,400? Uh, do you get it if you make 75000 or is the cutoff at 50000 it's all up in the air. It's all very confusing. And the thing that I want to know is whose signature is going to be on this here check? Because as we know, the last dude made a big, big fuss about making sure that his name was on the signature line. You know, it is uh, wild that the expectation, you know, is that folks should be getting relief, right? People turned out in droves, historic, unprecedented turnout twice. There was the election election, then there was like the Georgia Senate 
deciding election. Both times folks turned out in massive numbers. Uh, we heard about $2,000 checks, especially in the Georgia uh, election. It was a big topic of conversation. And now it seems like there is this effort to bring on board some of these more conservative-ish senators, the Joe Manchins of the world, Kristen Sinema, others, um, you know, trying to figure out where we can get 50 votes. Uh, but, you know, we sort of lost the forest for the trees because of the amount of money that folks actually need in this moment. Is It's not 1400 It's not 2000 It is way more than that. Uh, given all that's happening economically. Um, and on top of all of that, the wealthiest people, the billionaires in America, have already made an additional $1.1 trillion just during the pandemic in extra money that they didn't even need. So we could be cutting $7,000 checks to 150 million Americans with that money. So I don't know why we've been talking about 2000 Yeah, and to your point, Sam, it's also, it looks like two-thirds of Americans, 68% support Biden's pandemic package, according to Yahoo Finance was reporting on this, just building on that, Sam, like, yes, people voted for this administration, but also still, like, they are very specific about their support around this pandemic support. You know, so many people made a way out of no way. We, like, didn't know the pandemic was coming. People didn't have reserves of money, like, sitting around, given that, like, their hours might be cut or they might lose jobs. And people still, like, survived, you know? the least we could do is give people money to like make it through until the economy holds up. It is interesting. You know, you've heard the back and forth about like, is it $1,400? Is it actually a new 2000? It's sort of wild that this is still a debate over a one-time check. You're like, we're fighting all this time over a one-time check. This isn't even like, you know, three $1,400 checks this year or, you know, two $2,000 checks. This is a battle over, is there going to be one at all? You know, I guess the good news here is that there is a conversation on making adult dependents eligible this time where they weren't eligible before. There's also a conversation about increasing the amount that goes to kids. So under the Dems plan, parents of children will receive an additional $1,400 per child. That means a family of four will get $5,600. And the Dems are separately pushing a child tax benefit that would, over the course of a year, give $3,600 per kid under six and $3,000 per kid uh, six to 17. So like there are some interesting things that are being sort of pushed about in the plan, but going back to 2019 tax returns is like sort of hard. Like that, you know, might not be the best way to do it. We should just be giving people money. Like this shouldn't be a conversation. And you think about the sheer amount of money that we wasted under the Trump administration on things like space force. We could have given people a ton of money if we had never done space force or built the wall all those ridiculous things that the, the Republicans were all about. And now we want to help everyday people. And that suddenly is a problem. My news this week is from CNN. And it's an article about vaccine hunters who are getting their shots ahead of schedule by, quote unquote, gaming the system. Now, I brought this to the pod because one of my friends asked me recently, do you all ever disagree about anything on the pod? And I was like, hmm, that's a good question. Not so much, but I feel like this might be one where we scrap it up a little bit. So let me offer for you the example of Isabel Medina, who is the person highlighted in this article. Isabel is a healthy 25-year-old who actually was living on the West Coast, working in the film industry, but moved to the East Coast when film prospects died out and she moved in with her parents. She has time on her hands. She's flexible 
And so what Isabel and her friend were doing is scoping out pharmacies that were administering the vaccine. And she calls it vaccine dumpster diving. They call it vaccine hunting. Effectively, it's waiting around at the end of the day to see where pharmacies have extra vaccines that they need to um, actually administer. Otherwise, they're going to go bad. And so the idea is that while she's 25 and healthy and not anywhere near the front of the line for a vaccine, she and her friend waited at a particular pharmacy and the two of them were able to get vaccinated. Isabel says that she feels good about the fact that the vaccine didn't go to waste. And in fact, this whole entire issue is because the federal government has done such a poor job of the vaccine rollout. And so in lots of places, you might have seen the healthcare workers in Oregon who were stuck on a highway in a snowstorm, and they ended up giving out the vaccine to just people on the highway because the vaccine was going to expire. Or there are lots of cases where in many communities, they've made provision for communities to have the vaccine. There are people who are choosing not to take the vaccine. And so you have this extra vaccine stock. And you have people who are looking to take the stock that nobody else wants to take. And so um, there's a question around equity, of course, because usually in order to if you have the time and the energy to be able to go sit and wait at the end of the day, you nine times out of 10 are not poor. You're not a person of color. You, you know, you have to be sort of privileged in order to be able to do this vaccine dumpster diving or vaccine hunting. And there is a big question because even some of the medical folks that are quoted in this article talk about the fact that it's better than the vaccine going to waste. And so I bring it to the pod because at a place where we are working really hard to get the vaccine to the right people, complicated by the fact that not everybody wants to take the vaccine, what do we do when there are leftover doses that are going to expire, but we could give them away to people who otherwise would be at the end of the line? I wonder how we feel about that pod, friends. And I I will say that I am personally conflicted. I had the opportunity, I had a call from a friend who's a pharmacist whose community is not taking, they're not interested in taking the vaccine, they don't trust it. And he said, why don't you jump in your car and come on down and I'll give you the vaccine. And I thought, that's not right. That's not fair. That's not okay. Like, I'm sure there are frontline workers, teachers, somebody who could get this vaccine before I would, But the question of the vaccine going to waste um, is really a significant one. And so I offer it up uh, on the pod for a little bit of a conversation. What say you, friends, about these vaccine hunters? This is all a mess. Distribution's a mess. My brother, who I love dearly, who's 27 years old and healthy as can be, got a vaccination because he's a D.C. public schools employee. Why? Why? So he could go back to school. What's wrong with that? Hey, hey. I just, but I feel like it's got to be some aunties and some grandmas that also work at the schools. They, they're they getting it. They're getting it. All of the all of the school's employees are getting it in D.C. Woo, woo. I just need some paperwork to see that he was the <laughs> 800th and 97th person that got it. You know, and I think it's even for like hospital administrators that are getting it. Y'all been working from home. It's just more symptomatic of like what is happening is not working and no one seems to be in charge. And like, God bless this administration. But if I see one more executive order with no follow up plan and a good person to follow, actually, y'all is Ron Klain, because that's like where I've been really getting 
the news around what's going on with this administration with specifics. Um, and he's the chief of staff to Biden. On one hand, I'm like, I'm not mad at you. But on the other hand, I'm like, you don't have a great auntie or somebody that you can take down to CVS? So, Dion, I'm not with you on the teacher thing. I think your brother needed the vaccine. No, I, yeah, I, yes. But you know what? I just feel like in the, in looking at the totality of it, like, does it, is he really that at risk? I think that what is true is that they probably opened it for like 65 and older first. And then they opened it up to teachers. And like, just like in Baltimore, you know, are the 65 and like, are we doing a good job of even making sure that that crowd is taken care of where we're not? And I think that that is true, right? The vaccines can't go to waste. We spent all this time trying to make the vaccines, so like, can't go to waste. So come on now. So who is running the vaccine hunters for the hood? That's what I want. Vaccine hunters for the hood. Like you should be the moment that you know there's an extra vaccine. It should be the nursing home down the street. Y'all should be pumping them. So like, I don't think it, in the same way that like we figured out when restaurants were wasting food, it wasn't like we made people who needed food camp out outside we built an infrastructure that like took the food to where people needed it i would love for these cvs's and these pharmacies to say okay people aren't going to come in the next 30 minutes we are going to go to nursing homes in low-income neighborhoods we're going to go to like that they pre sort of scheduled these things like that is an option like that is possible you can do that in the projects you can do that in community centers you could do that at schools like if there was like a on call like you knew that in this hour you might get a text or whatever because you're in a targeted group and like the vaccines weren't picked up like we could do that instead of having rich white kids who have extra time sit outside the cvs's and just get it because like that's not fair there are also local people who are creating facebook groups so in the article there talks about the NOLA, New Orleans Facebook Vaccine Hunters Facebook group, where they're letting people know where there are extra doses. I'm not sure that they are targeting the people who need it the most, but there is a way, I think, to DeRay's point, to actually get the word out to people who would benefit most from having the vaccine if we were a little bit more creative with it. You're seeing so many different strategies played out in different states and cities across the country with regard to the vaccine, um, where, you know, one of the analyses that recently published through the New York Times uh, showed the proportion of people who've gotten at least one shot by state. And you can see that there is huge variation across places. So different places have different strategies around this. Um, and some of the places that have the highest vaccination rate, so U.S.-wide or nationwide, it's about 10% of the population has received at least one dose. Uh, of the vaccine. But in some places, uh, like Alaska, which is the state that has the highest vaccination rate so far, they're actually doing what we're talking about here. They're doing the outreach, going into communities, in some cases traveling, you know, an amazing distance, you know, in the snow, in the tundra, in the Arctic to get folks the vaccine who otherwise wouldn't have access rather than waiting for, you know, people who have the most money or the most time on their hands uh, to wait in a line all day at a clinic in order to get that vaccine. Vaccine. So, you know, there are some things that are starting to work in places um, where they're just really serious about getting folks the vaccine who otherwise might not have access. Um, so we can learn from from that. We can also look at, you know, what's happening in other countries. In the UK, uh, they have a higher vaccination rate than we have here. In Israel, same thing. So again, thinking about what actually is working here, where are the places that have the highest vaccination rates, um, and then how do we unpack those factors so that folks in other states are replicating those policies 
communities and getting to the same uh, end goal. I think that kind of a conversation we're starting to get at now because the initial data is coming in around uh, who's getting vaccinated, who's not, and where. The only part of the vaccination conversation that I am a little stuck on is can you travel to another state? So Kentucky right now is the only state that I have seen where you either have to be a resident or you have to be somebody providing healthcare services directly to patients in Kentucky to be able to get the shot. Like you can't like travel across state lines and go into Kentucky from another place to get it. And a part of me is like, ah, I, I guess I get that. But the other part is like, everybody needs to get vaccinated at some point. So I gotta like, I don't, you know, I would move heaven and earth to make sure that my father got vaccinated. You know, I would move heaven and earth to make sure my grandma got vaccinated. That my, you know, like, so if that meant drive three hours across state lines because it was screwy and whatever, then we're driving all night. You know, like, so I am torn. New York City is the first city that I've seen that's about to open it up to people with pre-existing conditions on the 15th. I think it's statewide, actually, because Cuomo said it. We'll be opening it up. So not just teachers and healthcare workers, but this will be a whole set of other people. And, and like, I think that's probably a good next step. In Baltimore, the school system said that they were going to have a set of doses. The Baltimore Sun just reported that the hospital said that they just don't have those doses for the teachers. So they promised a set of doses to teachers. And then they're just like, just kidding. We didn't get as many doses as we thought. And it's like, that sort of stuff also doesn't breed trust at all in the system. You know, when like people publicly go out saying we got something and then everybody's made to look like a liar. But it's also like, that's a federal government issue. Like the federal government is responsible for how many doses folks are getting. And now they're saying, oh, they're going to be 10 million more doses. Okay, we'll see. Um, And we'll see in my news that getting more doses doesn't mean that it's going to be accessible to folks. And New York State, yes, kudos for starting with folks who have pre-existing conditions. But just so everyone knows, this is the first vaccine distribution in the history of the world that didn't start with the most vulnerable people, which are people that have pre-existing conditions. I just don't know who's in charge. What's happening? So I think my frustration around stories like this is just like, again, it's a symptom of a larger issue around, yes, we're still playing cleanup from this guy letting this virus run rampant, but I think we could be working faster. I think there could be better federal government coordination, FEMA, National Guard, all that's going to be set up to do vaccination centers. But how long do we have to wait for that? And like the interplay between local, state and federal governments in how they're approaching this. So there was a story in Georgia where, you know, this I think it was this past week or two, they had a vaccine clinic that was administering vaccines to people who were not in the list of eligible people. So they were supposed to only administer to people, I think, over 75 or 65. They decided to include teachers as well of a variety of ages. And because they had started administering the vaccine outside of those guidelines, the State Department of Public Health came in and confiscated their vaccine supply. So like even like this initial thinking at the local level of maybe we have different needs in our community, maybe we want to start to expand eligibility so that we can reach people who really have need that we can connect to that we have a plan for, but, you know, aren't necessarily in the current phase of the rollout in the federal eligibility guidelines, they're getting hit 
now by essentially law enforcement, right? Coming in and saying, you're not supposed to do that. You can't vaccinate these people. And so it, it becomes a huge mess uh, that can make it difficult for, you know, you imagine folks in another state thinking about you know, how to meet the needs of their own community will be reminded of what happened in Georgia and, you know, potentially might not be able to expand eligibility in that way. I mean, I think it will be interesting to see the federal government is now mounting a response. I saw Mr. President Biden uh, today on CNN talking about opening every single NFL stadium to as massive vaccination sites, mobilizing the military to vaccinate people en masse. And so we're playing catch up on a, you know, centralized plan. But in the meantime, these other things are happening. And I think there are legitimate ethical questions about what, to me, this is a conundrum, right? It is not fair that people who don't really need it are getting it. But I also don't want these vaccinations that we have spent a lot of time and effort getting to going to waste. And so, I mean, I think, Diara, your news offers a a differently interesting perspective on this question. That's a perfect segue, Kaya. Thank you. (laughs) So my news is from NBC. NBC News actually has a cute little black page going on where they have all this black news. I was very surprised. Okay, That's NBC. It's February. That's because it's February. Oh, is that what's going on? They probably don't have no black people working there. No, but they, they do. Sure they, they have, they have NBC news. Black. NBC yeah, Black. Lily. It, yeah, Lily used to run it. We like NBC Black. It's cute. Right, it's very on, cute. NBC That's where black. I got my news on Mississippi. <laughs> okay, so in Mississippi, black residents are desperate to get vaccinated. How's that for a twist? Because all we've been hearing, the national headlines are black people don't want to take the vaccine, black people are hesitant. But evidently in Mississippi, they are trying to get it and facing all types of barriers. So here we have black folks in a town called Glendora, Mississippi, who are trying with all their might to get the vaccine to no avail. It's a community where the nearest hospital is 20 miles away. More than 50 percent of the residents in Glendora live in poverty. There are no vaccination sites operating in Glendora, obviously, or all of Tallahatchie County. The county's only hospital doesn't expect to get vaccines until later this month. Um, the nearest state-run drive-through vaccination clinic is in neighboring LaFleur County, and that's 30 miles away. Um, and even with that, when the appointments go really quickly, that's probably because the vaccine hunters are down there taking all the appointments, um, the, mayor of Glend- <laughs> the mayor of Glendora Johnny Thomas, who was 67, spent an hour trying to reach someone on the state vaccination hotline, hoping to book a spot for himself. And uh, we'll learn later what he had to do to get vaccinated. Just to zoom out to the, the pandemic has hit Mississippi extremely hard, particularly in rural areas where folks are impoverished. And we're seeing that the disparities are just adding up when it comes to these folks getting vaccinations. This just feels like a massive failure of leadership I mean, we've got lots of examples of failure of leadership over the course of this pandemic, but literally not putting enough vaccination sites in places where people can get to them. Literally, like people don't have cars and you have a drive through thing where you have it. It doesn't seem like, and I, I've had a job where people assumed a lot about what it takes to run a school district and why aren't we doing this and why aren't we doing that. And so I understand that things are complicated. But this, geez Louise, it just seems like we're not serious about getting vaccinations to the people who need it most. And in this case, people who want it. Maybe folks assumed that these poor black folks didn't want to take the vaccine. But in fact, they do. 
and you know we know how to plan things and we know how to distribute things and and so the fact that they are waiting until the feds get a vaccination plan together just feels really i feel terrible for these mississippians um, that the people who are their leaders in their states don't seem to either be taking this seriously enough or can't be creative enough to figure out how to get this. I mean, we just, Sam just talked to us about Alaskans getting across the frozen tundra to get their people vaccinated. Like, so there, a lot of times these things are a will issue, not a skill issue. And this just feels like... Kaya Henderson, you better say that one more time. What was that? Will, not skill, right? Like there you, you, know, you understand how to do these things. You understand how to implement these kinds of programs. But if nobody wants to do it, if the will isn't there to ensure that every resident of Glendora who wants a vaccine can get it, then it doesn't matter. Like they won't get it. And, and so how do we help people? I mean, this just goes back to a lot of conversations that we've been having about how we feel about our fellow Americans. Like, don't we care about these people? Aren't these people, isn't their lot tied up with ours? Like, don't they belong to us? Don't we belong to them? Why isn't the leadership there prioritizing getting these people the medical help that they need. Oh, because you know why? Because they don't actually worry about getting them the medical help that they need generally. So why would we do that in a pandemic? I mean, it is infuriating and I'm going to just shut my mouth now because sometimes when you don't have anything nice to say, you just don't say anything. Yeah, I mean, you know, the only thing that I'll have to add is this is not the only problem of access, right, in, that has happened, especially in Mississippi, but that we've seen all across the country, right? We talk about uh, lack of access in the context of food. We talk about lack of access in the context of education. We talk about lack of access in, in the context of being able to vote. And the strategies around how do we reach people, we're talking about the same communities, and the same people who have been shut out from wealth, who've been shut out from healthy food, who've been shut out from the franchise, who've been shut out from uh, the healthcare system and the ability to access vaccines. You know, this reminds me of you know the, the feeling, um, and we hear this all the time, this idea that uh, folks only really care about black folks when it's time to do an election, when it's time for us to vote. Then you have people ferreting out into communities, knocking on every door. You have micro-targeted campaigns where they're like, these are all the addresses where people over the age of 65 who are Democrats live. We're gonna knock every single one of these doors, make sure everybody has the information they need so that they can go and vote. And then when it comes time to administer a vaccine, we have all the same information, all the same data. We have the infrastructure. There are people who just knocked on these doors like in November. Why can't we just mobilize this infrastructure that has been built around something that's critically important, which is the vote in Mississippi, where a whole lot of folks turned out to vote for Mike Espy? So why can't we repurpose that same infrastructure in these same counties, pair that with public health professionals who can administer the vaccines, and make sure that every single one of these households gets a knock on the door and access to a vaccine? So you don't have to go online. You don't have to follow the governor's Twitter. You don't have to be paying attention because the vaccine's coming to you. And so, you know, again, like this is, this doesn't seem like an impossible challenge. Um, it seems like something that has been solved in other contexts. Kaya, you mentioned Alaska. They have almost twice the rate of vaccinations as Mississippi, and they're going across the tundra. And so, again, like this is a solvable problem. It's, it, it really is about political will. We're going to get emails from people being like, Sam thinks that Alaska is all tundra. 
Sam does not think that all of Alaska is tundra. You Alaskans, just so you know, we hear you already before you email us. <laughs> um, okay, when I think about Mississippi, you know, it's interesting when you look at the numbers, 70% uh, of the people who are vaccinated are white. 19% are black. We know that that is not proportional to the racial demographics in Mississippi. When you also look at the vaccination map that they have, it's sort of interesting. It is concentrated in the cities, which, you know, you you might think, but it's like, we already know COVID isn't only in the cities. You're like, you just didn't plan for this. What was interesting was that the highest number of first doses administered were actually in the drive-throughs, which we've already talked about. If you ain't got a car, sort of hard. Uh, and that the lowest number of vaccines administered was actually in pharmacies, like not CVS and Walgreens, but sort of like day-to-day -day pharmacies. And it makes me think about like, what does it mean to make sure that pharmacies in remote places have the vaccine or hospitals? Or like, how do you actually sort of plan for this? I'm also interested to see uh, the, the studies or whatever that comes out around second doses. Like what's the adherence rate for the second dose? And then how many people sort of do and don't and what that looks like. And, you know, they say that they're making a couple million more doses, you know, like that this is going to ramp up and I hope it does. And schools should open back up and the world opens back up. You know, Kai, I was talking to somebody that made me think of your story who he is older. He's probably like 65. He was like, I got a COVID shot because my son's friend worked at the place near the, you know, like, and he's sort of like, I felt bad about it. I also didn't want to die, you know? And like, it is this moment where you see people making these really interesting choices uh, that might be against what they would normally say, but they're like, this feels like a matter of life and death. So, so my news is about Denver, where uh, we just got in some of the results from an initial program uh, that they piloted in June to have mental health providers respond to a series of situations that up until then the police uh, had been the primary responders to. So um, what is interesting about this now, we've seen in cities across the country uh, that you know we're starting to see a different approach begin to be piloted in places, not only like Denver, but uh, also in Portland, in New York City, in Oakland, uh, in LA, um, that have started to uh, embark on a strategy that is not having the police respond to every single 911 call uh, that is made and instead divert some of those calls uh, to mental health providers, to social workers, to substance abuse counselors, to other people who frankly are better trained professionally and better prepared uh, to deal with those situations uh, and that also do not use force um, and, and threaten people uh, in those calls. Um, so in Denver, uh, we just got the initial uh, data in from that experiment, this pilot program for the past six months, um, and the results look really strong. Uh, so there were a total of 748 incidents uh, where this they call it the STAR program, but really this is a team uh, of uh, mental health providers that responds uh, to some of these calls instead of the police. Um, they drive around in a van. They have one van for the entire city that they drive around to respond to these calls. Uh, and in those 748 incidents, there was no use of force, there were no arrests, and nobody went to jail. And so uh, what is powerful about this um, is that they're currently scaling up the program. So in part, based on some of the initial results of that program, um, they've decided to make a $3 million investment at the city level uh, in expanding the program to handle about 3% of the total calls for service that the police department gets. 
Now, for context, the police department budget uh, in, in Denver, it's the police and sheriff's department uh, that have a sort of consolidated jurisdiction, uh, and their total budget is about $400 million. So 3% of that budget is about $11 million or so. Um, and yet, for only $3 million, they are actually going to be able to handle that same number of calls through an alternative rather than the police. So uh, this highlights two things. One, that that this program can work, um, that uh, a whole range of situations can be responded to by people who are not the police. Um, and this really ranges from uh, situations involving folks who are houseless, who actually make up the majority of calls in which uh, the STAR program has responded to, um, to situations uh, involving mental health issues and mental health crises, uh, trespassing calls, suicidal situations, et cetera. Um, but this broad range of incidents, uh, the STAR program has proven that they can affect Effectively respond to and connect people to services and supports rather than incarceration. That's what's happening in Denver. Uh, it creates a good um, foundation for what could happen in other cities as well, um, and proves that you can handle that. That folks who are not armed with a gun can not only respond to these calls effectively, can not only connect folks who need help with the help that they need, uh, but can do it at a fraction of the cost uh, that we're currently giving the police to do it. Sam, this reminds me actually of something. When I was looking for articles, I came across this story in Minneapolis, since I'm always looking for news in Minneapolis, since that's kind of hometown. But they just approved $6.4 million for the city's police department to hire dozens more officers this year. So evidently, after George Floyd, a lot of police officers like went on leave. I guess 155 officers are on leave and not available for duty. And so I think instead of being more creative and saying, what do we actually need these officers to do? What does it look like across the calls we're getting and what we're responding to? I, I couldn't find anywhere that that analysis was done. It just was like, there's crime, so we need more police. I don't. I also feel like people aren't paying attention right now to Minneapolis, but they will be paying attention when the trial comes up. So I don't know. I just thought that was an interesting. Just in, like in, I wish they would follow what Denver's doing. Like I just obviously these police departments aren't that aren't coordinated. But I just that one hit me as being like, is that really what y'all should do with six point four million dollars? What was most interesting to me about this was that the police are actually calling the mental health clinicians and the other first responders, which one. Um, I think indicates that even the police people understand that policing isn't always the first line of defense and they're having such a positive experience. I think it portends a, a really strong partnership. So when the police folks aren't worried, um, they, they feel like stuff is getting handled by the other clinicians and the clinicians are able to meet people's needs without the police, I think then you get, you know, it's not like just the mental health clinicians are saying, oh, we should be doing this. You can come together and say, this is a great partnership. And that I hope other jurisdictions learn from. I actually think the police, they can actually ease the way for this to happen in other places because in other places, well, I, I think, the, the police infrastructure might be resistant to this. There are police people who are saying, this is helpful to us, we are partnering well with them. And so I hope that the police will be advocates for this kind of replication in other places. You know, uh, DR, I hadn't thought about uh, Minneapolis, but I don't know if you saw that the governor of Minnesota has called the National Guard to be on standby during the trial for Derek Chauvin. And you're like, what do you think the people going to do during the trial? Like, Nobody, like, I don't, come on. Okay, like, you, now you're being a fear monger 
Thank you, Governor. Uh, the other thing about Denver is I remember that Denver rehires more than half of officers who get fired, and it's not the contract. It's city policy. So, like, you know, we often talk about no one of these strategies is enough, and Denver is a case study in that, right? Like, this idea that this program is good, yes, like, let's do it, and there's a whole lot of other stuff that needs to happen in Denver, and, you know, Sam reminds us every time we talk about the police that it's often a small number of officers who have a disproportionate impact on the department. Like those people got to go. It is hard to get them out of there, even in places like this. So while the police are all about programs like this, they are not all about them and then decreasing the number of officers. They want to maintain the number of officers or increase the number of officers and transition to programs like this. You're like, no, like that doesn't work. And the police are the first people to be like, we're not social workers. We're not, and we're like, we agree. Yeah. We with you. So let us move to responsibilities. And then they freak out, right? So I'm actually happy. What makes me happy about this being in Denver is that so many of the programs that we hear about are in places with no people of color, right? It's like all white communities. And you're like, well, okay, but tell me how this alternative response looks in a place with black people or Latino people. And then, and then I want to, and then I'm ready to talk to you. And Denver actually helps us think about that. Um, so I was interested in this uh, because, so there is a, um, and I'm actually interested to hear what everybody has to say about this. So came across this, there is a new paper that was put out by Professor Francis, Dania Francis. She's a researcher at uh, UMass Boston. And it is called, Do School Counselors Exhibit Bias in Recommending Students for Advanced Coursework? And what she finds is that in a blinded name swap experiment, that black female high school students were significantly less likely to be recommended for AP calculus compared to other students with identical academic credentials. What is interesting is when you think about the way that racism and bias shows up across a host of indicators. And you look at things like AP courses, which honestly I haven't even thought about since we've all been stuck at home for so long. But it was really interesting to see that female students were penalized less for having borderline behavior while male students were penalized less for having borderline academics. It was just like really interesting. And to think about what happened in this study with black girls and showing that like there is racism present in the way that people are recommended for courses, the way that black girls specifically are targeted um, was something that I wanted to bring here. You know, it was interesting. And she notes in here that school counselors were significantly less likely to recommend uh, black girls for AP calculus in both the weakest and strongest profile scenarios. And she even goes to say that black female transcript in the strongest academic and behavioral profile was, was equally as likely to be recommended for AP calculus as the blinded profile in the weakest academic and behavioral profile. So it's like for black girls, it may not even be enough to study. Like do you could be the best student you could literally be and still you were less likely to be recommended. So it was like, this was both disheartening because it was like, whew, like, you know, people tell you to do your best, be the best, da 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 da, da and, and like, yet that doesn't seem like it actually uh, matters all that much given the way that racism sort of shows up in the education system. So wanted to hear what everybody to think about it. It was interesting to me. Um, and I don't, I don't know what the fix is. I mean, she talks about some solutions here, but um, about reducing bias and blind reviews, but uh, this this both worried me and I was interested to see it. What I was raised to believe by my parents is if my little black self just worked as hard as I could and just did everything right and just was well behaved and did all my tap dancing and my tap shoes, that I would be able 
to at least get a little something or at least get in the door. And I think what this study shows is that even if you are good academically and the most well-behaved, if you are a black girl, child, you guys can't see me, but I'm just shrugging my shoulders. The hopefulness that I am pulling from this is that more research will be done on on black girls because it is rare for anything. I mean, I think this study like kind of accidentally showed what happened. I don't know if the, the goal was to um, was to problem solve for inequities that little black girls faced. But hopefully we see more things like this. The only study I know that's kind of in the in the realm is that it talks about how black girls are kind of natural leaders until about middle school. And then things kind of take a pivot because of the world. Yeah, don't 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 have much else on this one. Interested what the mother sister friend on this here line has to say. I mean, I wish I could say I was surprised, but I'm not at all. Not at all. Um, I mean, there are lots of studies that show the disparate impact or the disparate treatment of kids of color, poor kids, rural kids on access to things like AP, to SAT, to competitive colleges and universities. The College Board has actually done a really good job of documenting the fact that so many kids are undermatched. So many poor kids, so many kids of color, so many rural kids are undermatched because their counselors aren't giving them the appropriate information. Their counselors aren't telling them the schools that they would be competitive at. They just don't have the information. And I also can't help but recognize that counselors, most counselors don't look like many of the kids that they serve. Some 60, almost 62% of counselors are white and that is actually a mismatch from many of the kids they serve. So surprise, no. I mean, we know that talent is distributed equally, but access is not. And this is the thing that I, that many of us have spent all of our careers in education trying to fight because we know that if you give these kids the same opportunity, I mean, this is why in my school district and lots of others, we give the SAT in class. We require, we require AP classes in all of our high schools, not just some of our high schools. I mean, there is, oh my gosh, don't get me started. Um, I mean, I, I guess at the end of the day, this study and many others will continue to say the same thing, but this is a will thing as well. Until we start to see black girls the way we see white girls or white boys or whoever else, then we're going to continue to see this disparate treatment. Black girls are smart as anybody else. They should have access to these classes. And when they do, many of them perform at the same level as other kids, but we don't want to give them a chance. And then we wonder why. Come on. Listen. Okay. Sorry. Y'all got me fired up tonight. This is ridiculous. This is, I mean, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. If I told you how many freaking AP classes I went into college with, like it was bananas. And that was just because I got a good public school education in my regular old town. It wasn't super spectacular. It wasn't whatever, whatever. I had access to great teachers, to a good education and to the AP exams that then catapulted me into a decent college career. And every black girl in America should have those options. But we can't even get vaccinations to people in Mississippi who want them. So why are we surprised? Yeah, I mean, the only thing that, that I'll add is, like, this is not surprising, but it is nevertheless shocking and alarming. Um, 
you know, we just see case after case after case, study after study. They change the methodology, they change the design, they make it experimental, all of this. And the result is the same every single time, exposing new facets of racism, new facets of inequity, new layers of misogynoir, all of this just on top, on top, on top of the existing sort of foundation of what we already know, which is that institutional and systemic racism is a determinative or defining aspect of how the American economy, how the American political system, how the American healthcare system, how all of these, the education system, it is endemic to all of these systems um, and must be uprooted. Um, you know, for me, reading through this research, it reminded me, uh, it took me all the way back to uh, elementary school. And I, I think this was maybe like third grade, second grade. I was like too little to really even remember how old I was. Um, but I remember my mom having to fight the school to get me into gifted and talented. You had to do like an IQ test. I like got above the score that you're supposed to get. And even, I mean, the IQ test itself is racist, right? So like had to jump through that racist hoop. Then like you got the score you're supposed to get. And like still they didn't want to put me in the program. Like they just didn't want to put me in the program. So my mom had to fight. And like I don't even remember that many things from, from that age. But like this is something that just like sticks in my memory because mm -hmm. like I didn't know why I wasn't good enough for the program. Did I not test high enough? Was I not smart enough? Like why was it that my mom was having to fight to put me into the program. Like, why didn't they want me? And then like you get put in the program, right? And literally like the kids were like playing video games. Like it was all these white kids, they weren't doing anything, you know? Like they were put in this program uh, where they were just in proximity to one another. And they were like, you know, you, you, you did a little bit of math, but like it didn't make sense to me like why, um, why the system was the, the way that it was, why I was feeling the way it was, why I wasn't good enough for the program. And that was like a small microcosm, right? Like it's a small moment times a million, you know, every single day that folks are experiencing, especially black women in the education system, in the workplace, in all of these different systems and structures. Um, and then like you beat that system, right? You, you get in the programs, you get the, the classes, you get to college, you get your degree. And then you look at these wealth gap numbers and it turns out that a white family with no, that didn't even complete high school, has more wealth than a black family with a college degree. So you could jump through every single hoop and you still end up with a fraction of what the least qualified white person has. So again, like it is, um, it's infuriating, it's maddening, it's why this work is so important. It's why on a policy level, we need to be identifying every single aspect of these inequities so that we can target them and remove them. Um, and it's also why, you know, we need to have leadership in the education system and in all of these systems that is committed to doing that work. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People's coming. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high-coverage foundation. More popular than soft-launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi. It's more popular than influencers. See you in there. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two 
two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, And we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. And now I check in with Janetta Elzey as she gives updates on what's happening with the protests. Hey, everyone. It's me, Netta. Thanks for tuning back in. Last week, I mentioned being super anxious about something I was doing. And so, well, by now, if you follow me anywhere online, you probably saw that NBA on TNT and the arena gave me four minutes and 30 seconds of their airtime to speak directly to America from my heart about the state of where we are right now. This opportunity came through my homeboy master and an old college friend from way back at SEMO. So shout out to Keith, who's also from St. Louis. I've talked about how introverted I am and how I love being alone with Sage or with close friends. And that's really about it. So it took so much for me to just say yes to this opportunity. But I had to look all of that fear And again, my astrology lovers, my Virgo moon anxiety straight in the face and tell it to go somewhere because we had business to do in my city's name. It was important for me to give time and space to those of us who were on the ground in Ferguson on August 9, 2014, after Mike Brown was fatally shot by police officer Darren Wilson. That day, that first night, 
Our bonds and our wounds in the early days during the uprisings at home were forged in the fires of sleepless nights, days before that QT burned and brought national attention, national people and others to our city. No matter what happens, I'll always have a special place in my heart and honor those who were there on the first day and the next day and the next month and the months that followed. And of course, those who are still out there holding it down. I wrote that piece as a way for almost 32-year-old Janetta to honor what freshly 25-year-old Janetta, who was grieving her mother, would have said if she had it all together back then. I'm continuously trying to find ways to honor the brave, courageous, fearless Janetta from 2014. So I hope you all check out the PSA. And I can't thank John, Eric, Master, Keith, and everyone else at Warner Media enough for the opportunity. So now on to the news. So I'm one for calling a spade a spade. And let me tell you, this is a white supremacist royal flush. NYPD Sergeant Dana Martillo wore not one, but two highly visible Trump patches on her uniform while on duty at a Brooklyn protest on February 5th, which would have been Trayvon Martin's 26th birthday. One patch had Trump in all caps at the front and the statement, Make Enforcement Great Again 2020, beneath it. The other featured a Crayola yellow version of the Cheetos hair atop Marvel Comics Punisher's logo. According to the NYPD, an officer has already received initial discipline for wearing a politically oriented patch. That officer is likely this woman, Sergeant Dana Martillo. But here's the thing. Well, actually, here's a few things. The symbols she chose to wear to a Black Lives Matter protest represent and endorse a man who incites violence, riots, and upholds and encourages white supremacy and white nationalism. Who is she? An officer of the law or an officer of Trump? Seems like those patches let anyone who's wondering know that she'd protect and serve Trump supporters, Proud Boys, and other racists. And if that wasn't enough, this woman chose to wear her mask beneath her nose. A video clip shows her lowering her mask to blow a kiss at somebody. I'm not even going to address that. So nasty. And then put her mask right back beneath her nose. So she now represents... Yet another deadly threat to marginalized communities she encounters for refusing to properly wear her mask. Despite what NYPD's commissioner said about officers' need to remain apolitical because it's essential to public trust and officers' ability to perform their jobs, the performance here is anyone trying to conveniently forget that multiple NYPD police unions endorsed Trump in 2016, and in 2020. This isn't about an, an individual officer. This is the racist culture of policing in New York and in America at large. In today's Respecting Black Humanity is Optional headlines, a Utah charter school is in the hot seat for giving parents the option to opt their children out of Black History Month curriculum. Apparently, offering this extremely ridiculous option was in the words of the school directors, giving parents a chance to exercise their civil rights to not participate in Black History Month at the school. Civil rights? When and where do Black people ever get to opt out of whiteness? White storytelling? 
whitewashing of history. The Black history that's taught in American schools is already profoundly embarrassing, given that most of it already starts African Americans' existence on the planet as only slaves in America. While maybe a chapter or two about centuries of sickening anti-Black violence and oppression. And don't think I forgot about the teachers who continue to create pretend you are a slave assignments even here in 2021. Up next, unsurprisingly, Amazon is using ridiculous tactics to try to break up workers from unionizing. Some of those tactics include posting anti-union propaganda in employee bathrooms and straight to their phones via text anti-union meetings that seem to be more along the lines of attempts to brainwash or haze employees and even allegedly got the city to change the traffic light timing so employees couldn't talk to union organizers stationed near the Amazon warehouse. It seems like a showdown is about to go down in Bessemer, Alabama, where the 80% of the city's workers are Black and living below the poverty lines. Those Black folks, along with others organizing, are fighting to create the first union within Amazon. Since the pandemic started, Amazon workers worldwide have gone on strike to protest unhealthy working conditions. Last quarter, Amazon made over $125.5 billion. Imagine. The median income in Bessemer is just over $31,000. There are thousands of Amazon workers in Bessemer, some who could vote as early as this week to unionize. I come from a proud union family and have been a member of a union before in my career. I believe in people over entities and people over billionaires and their kind. Seems that 2021 is indeed the reckoning that so many have been avoiding. Last but not least, my good and dear friend, Dr. Sherry Williams, who I've mentioned on the show plenty of times before, recently wrote a piece called The Insurrection for the NAACP's Crisis Magazine. You best believe we're going to talk about it today. Let's start with this riveting quote. The law enforcement responses to the rioters was quite different than what we saw last summer when Black Lives Matter protesters marched peacefully in cities throughout the nation. During the chaos at the U.S. Capitol, we didn't see clouds of tear gas go thrust toward the massive crowd, nor rubber bullets discharged from officers' guns. We also didn't see batons swinging from their hands and pounding the bodies of the mostly white invaders who bombarded federal grounds. That kind of authoritative response seems to be reserved for Black activists and allies. So now listen. In my personal experience as a citizen journalist who just so happened to walk out of my home and into chaos and collective trauma that was reacting to yet another innocent Black life left dead in the street, people loved to tell me that I was lying. When I hit the streets in 2014, I actually really stayed in them. What I witnessed and experienced during those early, early days of Ferguson was white supremacy working like the well-oiled, highly American machine that it is. Birmingham had Bull Connor and church bombs. Selma had Bloody Saturday. And in Ferguson, we had a burning quick trip gas station. In their spare time, folks love to mind my business. So somebody's search led them to the reality that I did not graduate from college by 2014. Therefore, to them, I must have been one of those uneducated Blacks who couldn't possibly know anything. 
I wonder if their research showed them that many local police officers are not required to have a bachelor's degree. My mentions and emails from seven years ago are receipts of these petty, ugly attempts to belittle my God-given intelligence. So what happens when Dr. Sherry Williams identifies and says that she witnessed the same? How will whiteness and white supremacy try to discredit my friend's real and true emotions based on what she has seen and what we know to be true in this country regarding the treatment of Black people, Black resistance, and Black uprisings? So Dr. Sherry continues on saying, I saw white supremacy, white privilege, and white arrogance, a treacherous and explosive entanglement of toxic whiteness, explode and detonate the ideas of democracy and decorum that Americans hold so dear, only to leave open wounds that will not heal anytime soon. These Trump supporters, those in the streets and in Congress, saw themselves as patriots. But Black folks knew that if they had carried out these acts of insurrection, it would have meant automatic death for them. And I've said this on the podcast many times before, but again, maybe it'll hit different coming from Dr. Sherry Williams. When it comes to race in this country, the writing is on the wall. That is what's so sick and pervasive about white supremacy. The goalposts are constantly on the move for whomever is on the other side of that privilege. I will wait to hear whatever feedback Dr. Sherry received on her beautifully written piece and share here if I can. Thanks so much for tuning in this week, and I'll talk to y'all soon. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the Internet, which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high-coverage foundation. More popular than soft-launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi. It's more popular than influencers. See you in there. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Tashara Jones is from St. Louis. I met her during the protests way back in 2014. And since 2013, she served as the treasurer of St. Louis, the first African-American woman to hold the position. And now she's running again to be the mayor of St. Louis with a conversation about public safety, about homelessness, about poverty, key to her platform. It was an honor to talk to her. She's the best. Here for yourself. Tashara, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thanks. 
for having me. I'm excited. So I'm excited because you have uh, some exciting news that you are running to be the next mayor of St. Louis City. And, you know, as we jump into that, can you just talk about your journey in public life? You are already an elected official citywide. Why mayor? What have you learned, like in the roles that you've already been in? Yeah, let's start there. Yeah. So again, thanks for having me. I have been treasurer for the last eight years. And before that, I did a stint in the Missouri House of Representatives um, and was actually elected leadership um, in the Missouri House as assistant minority floor leader. And I come from a political family. My dad was comptroller for many years in the city, alderman, assessor. I had quite the career in politics. But, you know, a lot of times when your parents do one thing, you're not going to follow in their footsteps. So I thought I wasn't going to follow in his footsteps. There are things about your genetic makeup or like my mother used to always say, the quickest way to make God laugh is to tell him what you would never do. Uh, So I got back to a career in politics and uh, I've been here ever since. And I love what I do. Now, why mayor? You've been treasurer. You've had a chance to do some good stuff for the city. Why mayor? Well, I believe that elections nine miles away have more of an impact on your day-to-day lifestyle than elections 900 miles away, you know, outside of the most recent presidential election, of course. You know, when you're in local politics, that's an opportunity for you to make real change and see that change in real time. And I've been treasurer for eight years and been able to do a lot of great things for my community in financial empowerment, starting a children's savings program, and then also for the city in upgrading a city department, totally turning that around from something that was totally mired in corruption and turning it into a a highly functioning and efficient department. And then also as treasurer, I'm the chief investment officer. I've been able to make over $30 million in investments for the city over the last eight years. But I want to take that same spirit of innovation, that same can-do attitude to the mayor's office because St. Louis needs help. I mean, you spent time here. You know that St. Louis needs help. And I want to be that mayor that turns this city around and and is part of a larger discussion about our region and turning our region around. I love it. So what's on the horizon? You know, when we look at the numbers, St. Louis City has the highest rate of police violence in the United States in terms of those top 100 cities. There are other issues around poverty, around education, around childhood access to resources. You have a whole platform about a host of issues. How would you describe like the biggest issues that are facing voters today in the city? And then like, what are you going to do about it? What would your administration do that's unlike the current administration or administrations that have been there before? At the base of my platform is a guiding principle that you should be able to succeed here no matter what identity you hold no matter your skin color, who you love, how you worship, your zip code, none of those should determine your opportunity. In my opinion, number one thing that's facing St. Louis right now is, you know, we have the highest police killings per capita of any city in the country or the top 100 cities in the country. We also have had a really violent year in 2020 where we had a record number of murders. And I think we need to declare gun violence as a public health crisis and address it accordingly. Because when you do, you bring everybody to the table, just as we saw with this pandemic, right? When they declared a pandemic, everybody is at the table. That's the same approach that we need to gun violence in our city. 
Uh, and then when you declare it as a public health crisis, you look at the root causes, you look at the data, you look at, you know, where a lot of this is occurring and who, and then you attack it that way. And in my opinion, we have to attack poverty and the inequalities that are inherent within this region, the systemic racism that's inherent within this city, because we're one of the most hyper-segregated places in the country, and start to have those real hard conversations that we thought were going to happen after Ferguson, but we still have not fully addressed it head on. And that's going to be the difference in my administration versus uh, what's currently going on uh, with the current mayor. One of the things that you talk about in the plan is a local living wage ordinance and a homeless bill of rights. Can you talk about why you think that matters? Is is there not a living wage right now that's a law? Is it far from a living wage? Like what? Why is that an issue? We passed the living wage ordinance several years ago, and unfortunately, the state then preempted us and rolled it back. Poverty is the root cause of crime, and we need to pay all of our people a living wage uh, so they can take care of their families. I was the first elected official in the city to increase my minimum wage to $15 an hour. And I immediately was able to see how that made a huge change in the life of the people who worked for me. Uh, I had employees come up to me or send me cards saying, you know, thank you for increasing my wages to $15 because now I don't have to make that choice of whether or not I'm going to pay a bill or eat this month. Um, And so it's small things like that that make huge changes in the lives of people and like I said, the legislature uh, has preempted us. So um, we're going to see whatever we can do to increase wages. And I do believe that the mayor has already uh, signaled that she was going to do that just before we got into the pandemic just last year. But you're also starting to see other companies, private and public, that are going to $15 or on their way to $15. And when I talk about a homeless bill of rights, um, you know, I want to make sure that we do whatever we can to take care of our unhoused and also work with organizations that are currently uh, taking care of our unhoused and what I call God's work, making sure that they have rights. Because right now in St. Louis, it's, we criminalize homelessness. We criminalize panhandling. We criminalize uh, being in the park for too long after curfew. Um, And so we need to provide uh, options for our unhoused uh, to get back on their feet. Uh, We need to provide mental health and substance abuse services. Uh, We need uh, to partner with other organizations for sobering centers uh, and also partner with our region to make sure that uh, homeless services are available, not just in the city, but other places in the region as well. That makes sense to me. And what can we do? One of the things that you had an interesting plan about that I was like, let me ask her about it, was a St. Louis baby kit about family planning and reproductive rights. Like, well, how did you lead to this and what is the baby kit? Yeah. So uh, in Finland, every child born receives a, a, a new baby box uh, and it includes a, a whole host of you know resources that our families need to uh, be successful in those first few months of having a child. There's no better way that we can show how we care for our children than to start taking care of them at birth. Um, And so we have the college savings program that starts in kindergarten, but we also need to make sure that we're taking care of our newborns. And then, unfortunately, with African-Americans and other people of color, maternal mortality rates are sky high. So this is one way of the city trying to do what what we can 
to address maternal mortality. Can you talk about the the college program you set up? There are a lot of people, I think, who are listening who don't know what that is. Yes, absolutely. So the College Kids Children's Savings Account Program gives a college savings account to every kindergarten student entering a public school in the city of St. Louis. Um, And what I didn't tell your uh, listeners was that the treasurer in St. Louis is also the parking supervisor. So I am in control of all of the city-owned parking infrastructure. So that's meters, that's garages, surface lots, parking tickets. And so a portion of the revenue that we collect from the parking uh, division goes to fund this program. We load the account with the first $50, and there are incentives attached to it that we raise privately. Those incentives currently are match savings, uh, good attendance, and parents' participation in financial education courses. And we did the financial education piece because uh, this is a two-generation strategy. We use the child as an entry point to the family to increase their financial capability. And so far, we have over 18,000 children with over a million dollars saved for their future and growing. We started the program because we copied off of another city, San Francisco, that has a similar program. But also, research at Washington University shows that children with less than $500 saved are three times more likely to go to college and four times more likely to complete college than children without savings. So we know that two-thirds of jobs of the future are going to require some sort of post-secondary education, and this is a way to bridge that gap in funding for post-secondary options. That is, have you seen it be effective yet, or is it too early, or like, have you seen people take it, like, how is it, how has it been? Oh, we've seen the effects uh, in real time, so that's, again, that, that local government piece, right? And we've seen families uh, use our financial education options to refinance existing debt, to fix their credit, to get access to home mortgage programs, to buy their first home, open accounts for themselves or other children in their family. Uh, And we've seen also with the kids that, you know, it changes their also their social emotional health. Uh, So we've seen the changes that this program has been able to accomplish in real time. And if elected mayor, I want to expand it and bookend it. Uh, So not not only are we taking care of kids' financial health as they get into school, but how are we also taking care of our kids that are about to graduate and partner with our local community colleges and vocational and technical schools to offer free or reduced tuition to give our kids options as they graduate from high school. So I see this program as a game changer for our region to make sure that our children can get the training they need, the education they need in order to get into the middle class and take care of themselves and their families. You will be mayor in the time of COVID. Mm -hmm. And I've seen so many cities really struggle because you know, they want to do big things and there legitimately is a there's not as much money as there used to be for a host of reasons because of COVID. How do you think that impacts the way you think about what it will be like to be mayor? Like COVID still is continuing. It has had a, a big impact on the St. Louis region, St. Louis City. Uh, like what's the mm-hmm. plan there? You know, obviously um, it's going to be difficult. Uh, nobody wants to be the mayor in the middle of a pandemic. But I also see it as an opportunity You know, it also may be a time to right-size our government. Um, One of the other things I've noticed is that our police department is also larger than eight other cities the same size as St. Louis. And I think that this is an opportunity for us to really take a look at how we can do things more efficiently and effectively. 
um, how we can uh, reduce our spending in certain areas, how we can uh, do things differently on the local level. I think the other big piece missing from the equation is we don't yet know what the aid is going to be from the federal level. Uh, We know that the Biden-Harris administration has a whole host of plans uh, to invest in infrastructure and to invest in cities. And so we want to be poised to take advantage of those opportunities when they come down the pipeline. Got it. And what about schools? What's the mayor's role in making sure that every kid has a a great education every day. Is there no role? Does the mayor, is the mayor sort of ancillary? How does that factor into your plan? The mayor has no direct role with our school district. However, um, that doesn't mean that the mayor can't be a better partner and a better advocate. And I will be that mayor. I'm a single mom, the most adorable 13-year-old son. And so I look at my job as mother, as paramount and first in everything that I do. Um, And so I will be definitely paying attention to the health and well-being of our families and of our children and what I can do as mayor to be a better partner to our district and charter schools and public and private schools. Right. My goal is to help those leaders deliver a quality education no matter where that school is located within our city. And that's why I see my role as mayor with education. And since you bring up being a mom, how has and I'm sure he if he heard you call him adorable at 13 years old, he'd be like, Mom, I'm 13. Stop. I'm a, I'm a teenager. Uh, how has being a mother impacted the way you think about your responsibility or your role in public service? Oh, it affects it every day, um, you know, because I, I want to make sure that the decisions I make, that he will be proud of me. Um, So it affects, you know, how I deal with people, how I interact with people, uh, because the last thing I want is for, you know, him to be 21, 22 years old and and look up his mother's Twitter feed and say, "Ooh, she was horrible. You know, so I try, you know, I try to, you know, have that as a a lens that I look through, look at things through uh, to, you know, make him proud of me. And, you know, he's. He's asked, you know, since 2017, when I lost the mayor's race, then, you know, by only 888 votes, he's asked almost every day since, are you going to run again? Are you going to run again? Mom, are you going to run again? (laughs) And when I finally told him I would, you know, he was excited, but scared about that. And one discussion we had that nearly stopped me in my tracks was we were talking about you know, what the responsibilities of the mayor was. And he asked me about police and he said, well, mom, would you be over the police? I said, yeah, mommy would be over the police. And he said, oh, good. Well, that means I'll be safe. And it stopped me in my tracks because his mother should not have to become the mayor in order for him to feel safe around police. You're right. That was a sobering conversation that we had. One of the things I want to ask about, too, is about immigrant families. There's a sizable population of immigrant families in St. Louis. As mayor, how can you support those communities? St. Louis it has the largest population of Bosnian uh, refugees outside of Serbia. And um, this happened in the 90s. And we, we do have a sizable immigrant population. And I believe that the mayor has a responsibility to make sure that St. Louis is welcoming for everyone, no matter, you know, who you love or how you worship or where you came from. And so that's working with our existing organizations like the International Institute uh, to make sure that we do our part in city government to make sure that we're welcoming and providing a welcoming environment. And that could be, you know, making sure that a lot of our propaganda or a lot of our brochures 
are translated in different languages so they can, you know, navigate city government or, or navigate the city. Um, so I look forward to working with our uh, immigrant population and our advocates for immigrants to make St. Louis a more welcoming place. Is there a way that people can get involved to support the campaign or, or, or not? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, you can go to our website at Tashara, the number four mayor dot com. That's T-I-S-H-A-U-R-A, the number four mayor dot com and sign up to volunteer because we have people phone banking all over the country. Uh, in this race. And so far, we've knocked on over 40,000 doors. We've made over 10,000 phone calls. Uh, Election day is in 26 days, I believe, 26, 25 days, but who's counting? Um, And we are going to need all the help uh, we can get to get through the primary and through the runoff because we have a new election system this time. People are calling it a jungle primary where you can vote for as many candidates as you want to or as you approve of in the primary and the top two vote getters then go on to the runoff a month later. So, Tashara, I also wanted to think about how do you think about St. Louis sitting in the context of Missouri? Like, why does St. Louis matter in the state context or in the national context? If you win, you'll be a leader that helps to set the tone for the area, I believe. How do you think about the city in a larger context? I think of the city as in a larger context, especially being in a red state. You know, a lot of times, you know, the urban areas are run by Democrats and sit in red states. St. Louis is in the middle of the country, but also St. Louis is the economic engine for the state. Uh, With us in Kansas City, you know, we provide almost two-thirds of the tax revenue that's collected by the state of Missouri. Really? Yes. Yes. So I look at as a way to get together with our St. Louis County Executive Sam Page, as well as the mayor of um, Kansas City, to see how we can start to not just necessarily flex our muscles, but come together on, you know, two or three agenda items that then we can work with the legislature to move forward on. I don't think that our legislature has ever seen where the leaders of our urban areas, the elected leaders of our urban areas are actually in lockstep on anything. And this is an opportunity uh, to do so. I see the mayor as sort of a convener of sorts uh, to bring people to the table with different ideas and to sort of craft an agenda or craft a path forward, not only for the region, but also to work with our legislature to craft a path forward for our state. Because if St. Louis fails and St. Louis County fails and Kansas City fails, then the whole state fails. So we have to see our destinies as linked and we have to work together on making sure that we are, again, providing an opportunity and an environment where everyone can succeed no matter what identity they hold. Boomer, we consider you a friend of the pod. Can't wait to have you back. Thank you so much. I appreciate this, DeRay. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pods of the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Samuel Sinyangwe. And our special contributor, Janetta Elsie. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, 
relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. People think the new fresh fragrances from Glade are fresher than fresh, like artist Priscilla. This smells like houses in the Hampton Champagne toast down in Brazil. Smells like anything you think could happen, probably will. Explore the new Glade Fresh Collection today.